Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am delighted to be back. It is awfully nice to have some d- days off to celebrate and to have a little bit of uh, R&R, which is uh, always nice around midsummer as we now are kind of in part two of the summer. I always think of the 4th of July as the midpoint of summer. I don't I don't know if you feel that way, but it's like, oh, we're into part two of the summer and here we go. But I'm awfully excited to have Genevieve Wood back on the show. She is a senior advisor and spokesperson at the Heritage Foundation. She's also a founding team member of the Daily Signal. And usually we hear from Rob Louie on Tuesday, but Genevieve is here in his place. Always glad to have her with us. Genevieve, welcome. Good to be with you. I think Rob is making uh, his way back to D.C. after July 4th uh, time with family, so I'm happy to be on in his place. Nice. Did he get up to see his folks? He did, upstate New York. Yeah, I know. That's where he grew up. It's. Uh, I'm glad he was able to do that. I know he's been wanting and wishing and hoping to get the whole family together. So maybe this was the time. This was it. A good time to do it. Terrific. Well, there's a whole bunch of news items I'd love to chat with you about. I know that it was in June the U.S. Justice Department announced that it was going to file a lawsuit against the state of Georgia over recent voting procedures. Um, and I'm just curious as to where we are with that today. Well, they're proceeding ahead, uh, but I, I will say that I think there's some good news here is that very recently, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the state of Arizona in terms of it, some of its voting reforms and laws. And many of the precedent that you see, precedent that you see there, I think it easily apply if you want to go into a legal battle in Georgia. And the state of Georgia would be on very strong ground uh, compared to what you have the U.S. Department of Justice wanting to do there. So this is this is truly another attempt by the Biden administration using the Justice Department to try to go in and federalize elections and to help Georgia and other individual states uh, how they ought to go about doing it. And what's interesting in some of this is some of the, the things that they don't like about the Georgia law such as how far in advance you have to mail people their absentee va- ballot mm-hmm. or saying that people actually have to request an absentee ballot. We don't just mail them out to random addresses where people may not live anymore. Those same types of provisions already exist in places like New York. But interestingly, Department of Justice isn't suing the state of New York or going after them. So why is there a, a double standard there? Exactly. And doesn't it just seem like your basic common sense that if you want an absentee ballot, you request one and you get one sent to you? And I mean, I, I know that, that they say that some of these um, are are hostile towards voting rights. And I don't know if, if I can understand that uh, apart from just common sense. Well, and what they usually say is that these these uh, laws are racist. But the problem is, is these laws don't apply to individual people or groups. They apply to everybody. So it's not just white people or just black people or just Asian Americans that have to make these requests for an absentee ballot or have to do so by a certain date. 
everyone does. To, to, to suggest that these are racist laws when they apply equally to everyone doesn't really work so well. Uh, and for those who say, well, that's because it's easier for white people to do this. It's easier for white people to have, say, a voting, uh, to have an ID card. Well, that, that says to me that you think um, black people aren't capable of getting ID ID cards. I mean, who's the racist there? Totally. So, uh, you know, many of these places that they, they just don't they don't like the way these states are voting. Meaning, they tend to vote more conservatively. If you notice, those are all the states they go after are ones who might vote uh, for Republican legislators, for example, more often than Democrats. They don't go after states where they feel like they've already got the vote locked in. Genevieve, is this my white privilege talking? That I'm told what precinct, uh, based on where I live, that I should go to to vote. And then I go to that precinct and I, no, I'm being serious. I wait in line yeah. and then I, I go get registered and I, they check me off and I show my ID and then I go vote and then I leave. And then I go, okay, I did my, my duty as a citizen to vote. So if I'm three precincts over, should I be mad that they're not letting me vote over there? Well, you're making the exact uh, case that was made in, in the debate of what was happening in Arizona. That was one of the things is Arizona said uh, people who vote, People have to vote in the precinct in which they live. And by the way, they can only vote once in that precinct, not multiple times, and they can't vote in precincts in which they don't live. And the court upheld, I believe it was six to three, that Arizona has a right to do that. And not only do they have a right to do it, but it looks as, but that is a good way of ensuring that the vote for the citizens of Arizona can feel good about the fact that their votes counted. Uh, that, that, that there's not some just willy-nilly system, but this is a law that actually helps ensure voter integrity. Yeah, and that's how you have voted, like, your whole life, right? You you, you go to the precinct. As far as I know. That, <laughs> I mean, you go to the precinct. I, I, currently, that, I currently vote in the District of Columbia, so you have to be careful about how much voter integrity you talk about there. But, no, and, and all the other places that I've – and, look, D.C.'s another good example, right? Um, that That's a city where, you know, they get to decide – how they want to do their voting. They don't currently, for example, require people to have voter ID. I think that they should, because I think it's very easy to go in and say, I live at this street and this is my name. But if you don't ask me to prove it, well, anybody could be that person. Uh, but we let D.C. do it the way they want to do it. Mm-hmm. And other states should be able to do what they want to do when it comes to uh, voter measures and ensuring that their citizens feel strongly uh, that their votes are, are counted uh, and that, you know, this is not about cheating. This is ensuring that every vote counts. Mm-hmm. Genevieve, uh, Rob and I have chatted about this a little bit, and this subject is not going away anytime soon, but parents opposing CRT in schools, critical race theory in schools, getting louder and louder, isn't it? It is, because I think more and more people are waking up to what's happening. This is not something that just came on the scene last month or even last year, but it's becoming more insidious in terms of it's just in every single level of the classroom. This isn't just something that we're saying, oh, well, now it's showing up in 10th grade history classes. This is showing up in kindergarten, uh, where white children are told this is how you should feel about yourself. You should you should feel like you're a victimizer. Uh, and children of minority races are told that they're victims. That's happening as young as five and six years old. And I think a lot of parents haven't been aware about this. And as, and as I said, it's just getting, you know, it's getting down to every single grade level. But now it's becoming much more of a national story. You have parents in regards of whether they're Republican or Democrat, in many cases, whether they're conservative or liberal, they don't like this kind of thing. They don't like their children being taught those types of, of attitudes and values. And they certainly don't like it when you have teachers uh, doing that kind of thing without the parents even knowing about it.
Yeah, I would imagine there's going to be some uh, parents uh, winning in this uh, debate. I know some states like Florida, they have said, I think Governor DeSantis said that CRT will, will not be taught in schools. That's what you're seeing a lot. And this really is a state issue, by the way. I mean, not not just state, it's a local. I mean, you can't get any more local than schools. I mean, I'm not saying there's no federal role in any of this or that we should be having a discussion at the federal level. But at the end of the day, education is a very locally driven issue. You know, state, then down to counties and then down to the local jurisdictions themselves. And the reality is you already have, I think it's over 24 or 26 states that have proposed legislation to say we are not going to teach critical race theory in our public school system. Mm -hmm. That's half the country. Uh, And then I think there's four to six states that have actually already passed laws, I believe Florida being one of them, say that we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And then Genevieve, we're starting... And and this is early on. I think you're going to see more and more momentum for this. Okay. Now, as summer continues, uh, we're seeing more and more violence in cities. And I think there's with the the, um, defund the police movement and the violent spike in crime, what is going to be the solution for this? Well, it's interesting that I think it was just uh, last week or week before the Biden administration tried to suggest, which is honestly quite laughable, um, that it's actually Republicans who want to defund the police because many of them did not support the latest CARES Act, which, you know, was the one size fits all, put everything in it, every kind of Christmas tree ornament you can uh, money for supposedly for COVID, but it covered everything plus COVID, right? It covered every infrastructure and education and military and police, the whole gamut. Everybody tried to get their piece into this bill. And because many Republicans said, we don't believe that we should be passing legislation like that. We ought to be taking, we want to address COVID. We should address COVID on its own merits, address education on its own merits and so forth. That somehow Republicans are the ones wanting to defund the police. I don't know very many people that are going to go by that that line. Uh, I think the reason they have gone to that extreme type of messaging is because they're seeing crime go up. And it's not just in major cities. That's where you're seeing a lot of it. But you're, you're seeing it in the suburbs, too. And voters care a whole lot about the safety of their neighborhoods. That's a very uh, – people talk about pocketbook issues. Uh, there's nothing more concerning to people than whether or not their neighborhoods are safe, where they live, and where their children are. And so this is an issue that I think going into the 2022 midterms, Democrats are increasingly concerned about whether uh, those suburban voters, as I think they won over last time around, are going to be with them for the midterm elections. And then there's there's some stores around the country that are, instead of having hours till 10 o'clock at night, they're closing at 6 o'clock because a lot of employees don't want to be around in the evening because they consider it to be too dangerous. Yeah, and that's a, that's a huge problem. I mean, if you live in a neighborhood where you're used to going and getting something at, you know, after 10 o'clock work. at night, 8 o'clock at night, right. yeah, after work, uh, you're like, well, wait a minute, why? And then you start asking, well, why are these stores closed? And, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, we're having tar- trouble hiring people, if you will. But some of it is they're, they're concerned about what happens when the sun starts going down. And you have increasing, I mean, I live in Washington, D.C., and it's a city where, you know, it, it does not feel as safe as it did two years ago. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've allowed uh, more homelessness to, to occur on the streets and not doing anything about it. Uh, they've allowed all these marches and the like and all that happened over the course of this last summer, this pa- past year, to kind of play in again into this year. And I think a lot of business front store, they don't feel protected. Uh, they didn't see the police. They saw police protecting a lot of riders and not necessarily protecting businesses and storefronts. 
And so I think people are very cautious about how they reopen, even though we, we seem to be coming out of COVID. Uh, people are very cautious, and there's kind of a, a hangover, if you will, um, to what happened last summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Genevieve, you said it's been you've seen the change in two years. Do you see any ways in which you've changed your lifestyle in the last couple of years? Do you notice yourself doing things differently or not going places or um, just a different patterns? Well, I think I, you, you don't make the assumptions you used to that that will be open uh-huh. anymore. I mean, the fact that things that used to be open five days a week or six days a week, you know, they, well, they've changed their hours, as you noted. That's not just happening in D.C. It's happening in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think depending on where you live, people have made some they may decide to shop in different areas, right? Why, if you don't have to shop downtown or shop in an area that you think is going to be a little bit more dangerous, you go out and do it in other places. Well, that's bad for the businesses downtown. Yeah. But people make those decisions based on what's going to be best and safest for them. Mm-hmm. Genevieve Wood is my guest uh, from the Heritage Foundation. We'll take a little break. We'll come back and, and uh, talk some more with Genevieve Wood. Genevieve Wood, she is a senior advisor and spokesperson for the Heritage Foundation. And Genevieve, I was uh, looking at, I don't want to bring up Rob Bluey because he's usually my guest on Tuesday, but he wrote a great uh, <laughs> story on um, a military veteran speaking out against the wokeness in the military and how we need to keep focusing on the correct thing of defending America, not advancing the left's woke agenda. It's a really uh, well-written, interesting story. Yeah, and he interviews a gentleman. There's a podcast attached to that, so you can listen to it if you don't want to don't want to read the full piece uh, with a gentleman who's been both in the Navy and the Army, uh, and talks about. You know, he now works for, the, for an association that represents members of, of the Navy and the military, and so he talks with a lot of folks currently in the military about what's concerning them, and he can like he can then take those concerns that many of them may be concerned to publicly say, and take that to members of Congress and other and others, and let them know. Here's what's happening that we think is concerning from the inside. And one of them is this whole critical race theory that we talked about in the schools is also happening in our nation's military and trying to, tr- to train and teach people in the military uh, to, to put a lot more emphasis on race, for example, than military readiness, diversity versus military readiness. And he just talks about how dangerous that is, uh, not just to those serving, and it's certainly a you know, really hurts the morale there. But when you hurt that morale, it means you, it hurt. It makes it harder to recruit. It makes it harder to get people who are maybe finishing up one tour of duty to sign up for a second or a third. Uh, and he talks about the fact that we're putting so much of uh, our emphasis in the very wrong places. And the fact that, you know, well, the military leaders are saying, hey, we need more ships. In reality, what's happening behind the scenes is we're steering a lot of money to this kind of diversity, critical race theory training, and we're hauling out our forces in many cases. So it's it's a very good article, a very good podcast, but it's also disturbing to hear some of what he has to say. Yeah, I agree. His name was Jason Beardsley, and he said, in a firefight, the one question that never occurred to me was, do I have enough black guys on the guns down behind me? Or do I have enough Puerto Ricans on this side? Nobody cares. We want talented service members who honor the flag and respect the heritage of this country. 
That's what, because when you're in a firefight, that's what really matters. Isn't that's it? all I mean, that that's matters. What, uh, you would you would think that's what people are very concerned about, not what you know races and genders and exactly. We had this many you know people from here and this many people from there in our forces. Uh, and look, I, I was just actually in Pensacola over the fourth of the week, the fourth of July weekend, visiting my nephew who is a Marine. And you know, one of the things that struck me about what you saw the folks on base it's how diverse our military is. It's probably one of the most diverse. Ex- ethnically and racially groups of any profession in this country. So to go in and to suggest that somehow we need to reteach people how to get along, they seem to be doing pretty well in that, in that category. Uh, what we need to be doing is ensuring that they have the, uh, the training and the weapons uh, and, and all the technology that goes with it uh, when they're called to be, in, to be in a battle. And again, he, he speaks to the issue of, you know, specifically in the Navy. Uh, we, we know we need more ships especially when you look at what countries like China are doing. And yet, that's not where much of the focus of this current uh, political military discussion has been going. It's been more focused on this CRT, critical race theory, which is completely the wrong direction. Yeah. And Genevieve, I don't want to just finish on uh, focus on wokeness today, but it seems like it keeps coming up (laughs) over and over again. So when you uh, think about the athletes' activism, I think of... Uh, the transgender competition with the Olympics coming up and all that. I mean, this this is out of control once again. Well, it's just it's another area and one of the last areas, sadly, where you try to keep politics out, right? Yes. You try to keep these cultural debates out. Like we just want to turn on and watch a game. We Thank just want you. to turn on and watch the Olympics. And, you know, if we want to have debates over whether or not we should be going to China because of the human rights abuses there and they're the ones being able to hold the Olympics, I think that's a fair debate to have. But this other stuff of like, you know, should men be able to participate in women's sports at at any level, forget just the Olympics at any level, Mm -hmm. is a – I mean, talk about uh, discrimination. I don't know of anything more discriminating against against women uh, than letting men, who in most cases are, are physically stronger and are going to be faster, participating as women in their sports and taking away their medals and taking away their scholarships and taking away their their awards. So again, this is one of those areas where you just you can't even believe we're having the debate, but here we are. Yeah. So what do you know about what's going on at the border? I haven't paid attention in the last four or five days for good reasons. Don't if you want to if you want to be saying don't pay attention. Look, I mean the problem at the border. You know one of the toughest things about this is that we actually know how to fix this problem. Sometimes there's things that we are like, what should we do here? And we're not quite sure. We know what to do here. There are a lot of policies that were happening under the Trump administration that were that were keeping our border in check. That were telling folks who who would come here, don't come, and so they weren't. And all those policies have been thrown out the door. And so now what you have is people coming from Mexico, from Honduras, from El Salvador, all the countries south. And not only are they violating our laws by just crossing the border, they're also putting themselves at great harm uh, and and putting themselves in jeopardy in many cases, especially women and children. And, I mean, there was a report out, I think, just last week showing that these human smugglers are making an average like $14 million a day, $14 million a day. (laughs) smuggling people from parts of Central and uh, Central and Southern America in the United States. These aren't nice people. Uh, everybody doesn't make it. And yet that's the kind of money that they're making. The, the amount of fent- uh, fentanyl and illegal drugs that we see coming across the border, it's like four times what it was. Uh, I think they, they picked up uh, as much in one month as they did in one quarter last year. 
That's the amount of drug trafficking going across. And that's all happening because we decided that we want to reverse policies. We don't want to enforce our policies. And look, I think Congress should be doing more, but there's plenty the administration itself can be doing, which is what Trump did. Trump couldn't get Congress to act on immigration policy either. So he took the tools that he had to ensure that we had a secure border and try to keep people on both sides of it safe. Uh, the Biden administration's thrown all that out. Uh, who is in who's in control at the border? Would be would it be the criminals? I mean, if they're making fourteen million a day, I would assume that uh, if you follow the money, they're they're the ones kind of running the show. Well, definitely. I mean, look, we have laws and we have policies, but if we choose not to enforce them, then those who want to violate them are the ones running the show. I mean, at the end of the day, that, that's who's benefiting, not, not our side of the fence, but the, the other side. And again, the, the people that, that so many in the left say that we're wanting to help, many of them aren't being helped. Uh, many of them, A, don't make it here. Two, they may, they may give all their life savings over to get here. And hopefully, you know, the, the sad thing is many of them that make it so far that have to go back. And the reality is they've lost all of their money. Uh, and some of them, like I said, they don't make it, meaning they die along the way. They're taken, they're abused along the way. And the other side of it, look, we have laws for reason in this country. It's not that we don't want people from outside of America to be able to come in and visit, come in and work, or in some cases come in and be citizens. But we have a way about about doing it that's best for those who already live here and those who eventually want to live here and want to call America home. There's a process for doing it. A lot of that needs to be reformed. Our immigration system is a mess in a lot of ways in terms of how people apply and the bureaucracy behind it. But the, but the uh, sane thing to do, the humane thing to do, would be to go in and do the hard work of fixing those bureaucratic messes, not just saying, well, let's just open the border and let everybody come in. Uh, because, you know, some of the people coming in are not so nice people. Uh, and some of them are not from South America either. We know that people are coming from all over the world, people who think they can get in illegally. They're coming on our southern border because they know that's an open hole right now. And they come in and they do bad things to people who already live here uh, and people who are coming alongside uh, alongside them crossing the Rio Grande. So it's not a good situation for anybody. Uh, it's a lot of chaos, and it doesn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. And Genevieve, your uh, nephew is a Marine that you visited? He is, yeah. yeah. Have you ever, ever challenged him to, to like, a push-up contest or anything? <laughs> no, I'm going to do a little bit more workouts <laughs> first. No. <laughs> He's uh he's in great shape and, and he's loving it. He he just uh he's just became Lance Corporal. He just did boot camp last fall. So he's uh he's excited about it. It's and really we're very proud of it's him. It's really inspirational to hear about kids like your nephew who's, you know, just this determined, focused kid that loves his country and wants to make a difference. That's right. That's and there's a lot of them. I know there is. I know. But I love hearing the story of your nephew and I'm glad you had a chance to visit him over the fourth. How how lovely was that? Good weekend to do it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Genevieve. Uh, my listeners love you, so thank you for stepping in for Rob, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much, and um, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Genevieve Wood has been my guest all the way from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from a first-time author who's written a book, a uh, lovely devotional, um, and his name is Steve Hallblade. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. I'm holding a book called An Alphabet for Change, Observations on a Life Transformed. Now, the alphabet, this book, provides... Kind of a simple roadmap, which I think we all like simple stuff. And it, it kind of draws you into the readings um, and encourage you to, encourages you to take very practical steps. And the author is Steve Hallblade, and he's joining me here in studio today. I'm awfully glad to have him here. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, I want to learn a little bit, little bit about you. I, I have a feeling you're a first-time author. I am a first-time yeah. author, yes. So we, I have to find out everything I can know about you. <laughs> Tell me about your background, your faith journey, and all that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I uh, grew up in a Christian home, lived here in Minneapolis all my life, uh, uh, went to Covenant, grew up Covenant in the Covenant Church, and um, went to Bethel University where I met my wife, and uh, we've been married now for we're coming up close to 30 years. So mm-hmm. uh, we have two adult children, uh, both which attended uh, University of Northwestern. Uh, one is still in school here, and the other one uh, graduated. Okay, I, I already like you better than <laughs> I did when you walked in. This is all good to know. And uh, and we have a wedding. My eldest uh, daughter is getting married this summer, so that'll Fantastic. be that'll be a new thing for us. Yeah. Um, but great Christian parents, yeah. so uh, accepted Christ into my heart and uh, and into my life at an early age. So kind of always grew up around the church. Had a great youth group growing up. Um, went to college, get, got my degree in, in business and marketing, yeah. and spent 28 years in the packaging industry selling packaging equipment. Wow. And did you have a little rebellious phase or not so much? Uh, I think in the college years I, okay. I did, yeah, for sure. But uh, but uh, uh, God brought me back. So. Nice, yeah. <laughs> so the, tell me about the story around this book, uh, An Alphabet for Change, Observations on a Life Transformed. Where did this idea come from? Um, so I have to go back to 2019, uh, or actually 2020. So when March came in 2020 and, and the pandemic started to spread across this country, uh, I was like a lot of Americans, a lot of, a lot of my friends on social media a lot. And I really, uh, my heart ached, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, just seeing friends, I guess, and Christian friends that were, I mean, just the discord, just the, the, the rhetoric going back and forth, uh, you know, on two sides of it, you pick the subject, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, at that time I made a, a commitment. I put it out there on one of the social media platforms and I just said, you know what, I'm going to just do a post a day just of something I'm thankful for. And so I wrote, uh, that's, that was my only social media outlet then, um, was every day I, I posted something I was thankful for. And they turned into micro blogs, I would say. Uh, and I went on for a hundred days. And, um, when I finished, I kind of felt a stirring that I kind of missed the writing mm. after that little period. And then, uh, Shortly thereafter, I, I actually had a dream. So I say in the book that it was a godsend because the idea of the alphabet, I, I woke up literally one morning and it was like God had put it in my head through a dream and just said, I want you to write a book and 
pick attributes that that would point people to me and have one for each letter of the alphabet. So that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, I like the simplicity of that, and it's really fun to go through the alphabet and say, ah, all right, what'd you do for the letter H? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) And as I have the book in front of me, the letter H is humility. Right. And so you would talk about stepping towards transformation, and it says pride is the enemy of humility. If we want to demonstrate humility in our daily lives, we must ruthlessly eliminate our pride. We must tear it out at the root. That's right, yeah. And that's one of the hardest things to do, right? I mean, oh yeah. Um, I think I think that's one of the attributes in the book for me. That's that's one of the most difficult, especially even now after writing a book and I've done a couple podcasts and things. And it, and there's this fine line of promoting versus just wanting to get the word out and and hopefully get a message that God can use. Uh, my friends, uh, colleagues actually at work, we like to joke about the, the idea of humility, and it's like, oh, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Uh, have you read my book? <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, because you now have to do a certain amount of self-promotion. Right. Because you do want to let people know that you've written a book that's got some spiritual application that you might enjoy. And books like this, uh, Steve, it's because you can sit down and, and read six pages of it or five pages of it and feel like you've walked away with something in a brown paper bag. Sure. Yeah. And especially if you think of what the alphabet is and you might sit in your head going, I wonder what the letter D is. Yeah. And you just go look it up, right? Right. Yeah. What is the letter D? D is devotion. Devotion. Say more about that. Um, well, I think what what I found is, so but one of the things that that I really found in the writing process was that I think God really used it to, to teach me a lot about all these things I'm writing about, you know, you have to do the research as you're, as you're looking up and that's easier now with the internet and things like that. But, but for me, um, I think the thing he taught me with devotion was just that, um, just the whole idea that we can say we're devoted to all of these different things, but true devotion really needs singular focus. It, it really, uh, it should be, your devotion should be to the one thing that's most important to you. And, um, we all like to say we're devoted to our wives. Well, we're faithful to our wives, and we're and we we want to honor them. But we should be devoted to God, if 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 uh, and and devoted to Jesus, if if that's who we claim is our Savior and our Lord. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's finding that. I mean, even in the I think the the passage I use in that chapter talks about uh, when when Jesus was teaching about you cannot love both God and money. You know, um, because one you know one will be a master, and um, so it's. It really taught me that you really need to look at where you're spending your time, your resources, where is your true devotion. So so when you finish the book, uh, you know, you're probably always having friends suggest, so for the letter A, did you use this word? And you, you, you might think, ooh, that is a good word. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I would have used that word. Yeah. You know, as I'm sitting here looking at the letter A, yeah. it is authentic, right? Authenticity. Authenticity, yeah. right. Right. And I was wondering if the letter A was going to be allegiance. Sure. You know, sure. all these words that start to come up and, and yep. you realize you can look through this devotional and, and create your own as you go. You could. And make it even more of a, a personal devotion part two. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's funny you bring that up because even in the writing process, I had some friends know that I was working <clears throat> on the book and, and what the concept behind it was. And so I'd get, I'd even get those suggestions uh, as I was writing uh, and and I might not have even had the attribute picked out yet, uh, so I I really tried to pray about uh, everyone that I picked. Uh, so it wasn't just I didn't feel like I was just um, 
rolling the dice, so to speak, on, on picking uh, different attributes or practices. I really tried to be intentional. And there are. there. You're right. There's so many different ones. You could write a, a series of right. these um, and have a different one each time, except maybe maybe some of the tougher letters, maybe Q and X might be, <laughs> might be a little tougher. But yeah. Um, but, yeah. So it, but I tried to pray and, and be thoughtful and, and listen to God in that, that whole process. Yeah. So when you put this book together, were you thinking about a particular group of people that you would think would benefit the most? Were you thinking of your friends that were on Facebook and were exchanging barbs with each other? And <laughs> yeah. let's let's tamper down the energy and maybe get back into a, a devotional way of thinking and praying. And I was, I was, and and the other thing I was thinking about uh, is that to your point earlier, I, the, the chapters are small, they're accessible, they're easy to read. Um, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm, I don't consider myself a theologian. I didn't go to school for that. Um, so a lot of the thoughts are are things that I feel God just revealed to me uh-huh. in, in in reading his word and in studying. And so I wanted, I wanted something that for maybe, uh, I guess as a devotional, for maybe people that have tried devotionals in the past but have gotten bogged down, this is pretty easy. And, you know, if you think about it, the alphabet, 26 days, so there's not a huge time commitment, but maybe to try to draw some people back into spending some time with God either morning or evening and it, it can be 15, 10, 15 minutes. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was really to, to try to draw people back and do this engaging, so to speak, um, with uh, both Scripture. The other thing that I did that's intentional that you'll notice is I, I embedded the Scripture into the chapters. I did see that, uh, which, so, which is one of the first things I liked about it because when I look at books that come my way, the first thing I look for is how much Scripture is in the book. Sure, sure. If there's not a lot of Scripture, there ain't a lot of interest. Sure, sure. And and I also, I, I re, I've read a lot. And um, the other thing that's tough is when they just put the reference, you you can go, if you don't have your Bible there, a lot of times people just won't go and look it up. So I wanted to make it really accessible so that they, so when I'm referencing a Scripture passage, it's right there. They can read it. Um, so uh, in that way, I'm just hoping that it kind of draws some people in that, that maybe have not. Yeah. My mentor, who... Uh, a long time ago, when I was um, a much younger person, we started doing a lot of scripture memorization, and he came up with an A to Z list of, of verses for every letter, which turns into a word, which turns into a verse. So, of course, that was 26 verses I me- memorized a long, long, long time ago. Sure. And it's fun to think about those verses, and I review them often, but it's also nice to have a devotional kind of based on the same premise that you go, hmm, I wonder what the what the the L word is, sure. and it reminds you of a passage or a scripture or a devotional, so you can kind of have a, a running bank of devotionals in your head. Yeah, if you go through a book like this, that's great. Yeah. What is L, by the way? L is love. Oh, I knew it was going to be love. Yeah, how could it not? Be? <laughs> how could it not be love? <laughs> Do say more about love and what passages you use for the love verse. Sure, sure. I, well, I, I use the the uh, I use the current. Uh, Corinthians passage, sure, um, thirteen, yep, uh, and um, and then I used. Um, gosh, you're putting me on the spot. I think I I think I used. Uh, did I use a um, passage in First John? No, I just see First Corinthians thirteen. Okay, which is good. Ear- earlier, uh, a couple pages earlier in the in that chapter, I think there's one more passage. Oh yeah, here we go. Okay, 
Yep, I don't, I don't, I don't spot it right away, but okay. I bet it's in there somewhere. So, but uh, I, I thought maybe I'm, I could be thinking of another. Yeah, First catch. John four. Okay, First, First John, John four yeah. seven to twelve. Yeah, yeah. It, my dear, my dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. No one has seen God ever, but if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us, and His love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the other thing I did is that. Growing up in the church, I've—I mean, I grew up w- with an American Standard Bible um, and King James and things like that. I—I I wanted to include most of the, or all of the passages are from the Message, which you know, paraphrase or translation, however you look at it. I, it gives you a fresh look at the verses. So, mm-hmm. I'll take a little break. My guest is Steve Hallblade. He's written a book called *An Alphabet for Change: Observations on a Life Transformed*. It's an easy read. We'll take a break and be right back. Back to the show. Steve Hallblade is my guest, and he wrote a book called An Alphabet for Change, Observations on a Life Transformed. So what were the, some of the nicknames off Hallblade? Switchblade? What else? Um, growing up, it was just Blade. Blade? Yeah. I don't mind. That's a pretty nice nickname. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I had that uh, across my the back. I never played football. I'm a pretty small guy, but yeah. we played touch football at church, and that was the that was the name across the back. I like that. Any of your friends still call you Blade? Uh, not not too much, no. Really? Once you turn over 50, I think that kind of goes away. <laughs> Note to Steve Friends, go back to calling him Blade. He thinks it's cool. All right. Um, let's talk about some of the things you struggled with when it came to this book. What were some of the toughies, the ones that you really labored through? Yeah, I think, well... What letters in the alphabet? Let's, uh, get, yeah, let's uh, keep it simple. Yeah, I, I think, well, I think the e- easy ones that were tough, the easy ones that were tough, if that makes sense, were Q and X. Okay. Uh, it was tough to find attributes. Yeah, um, but I, I was thinking more in terms of what attributes oh, in the alphabet that you personally oh, would got have it. to work harder f- uh, to embrace. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, I am, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with an Enneagram, the Enneagram and, and, and Myers-Briggs, but I'm, yeah, for, from a Myers-Briggs standpoint, it's a personality test. I'm an ENFP, so... Uh, and and a seven or an enthusiast from the Enneagram type. So I'm someone that loves to be in the center of the action, loves to um, loves to be around people. So the attribute of quietness, which is Q in the book, yeah. is one that I struggle with a lot. And but yet I think it's really uh, along with quietness uh, and solitude. I think it's a really important aspect um, in walking with Christ and just just spending time alone with Him and listening. I think a lot of times we like to we like to read and and pray, but we don't spend a lot of time just in silence and listening for God. I would agree. It's uh, difficult in a distracted world that we live in, especially if you take your phone into the room where you're going in to listen to God. For sure. And after thirty seconds, you check to see if there's a text coming in or something. Right. 
it's pretty crazy. It is. You know, I, there's ways in which we should be much more disciplined in getting alone with God and then getting quiet with God and then getting ourselves in a position to hear from God. Agreed. Agreed. The The other one that um, I would say, so let me back up a little bit. One of the things that I, I when I first started writing the book and, and knew kind of the direction that God wanted me to go with, with the book, um, I wanted to make sure that I included the fruit of the spirit in, in the attributes, um, whether by the same word that, that, uh, was used in the Bible or another word, like for, for patience, I used, used yielding. Okay. Um, and, uh, um, that's another one that I personally struggle with is, is patience, um, I think probably all of us, we're in a culture that says you don't have to wait for anything anymore, uh, whether it's, you know, microwave food, drive through restaurant. Uh, Unless you're waiting for the painter to come back. <laughs> I make a little joke in the book that said the only time we get to work on patience is at the DMV. Right. Um, but other than that, you know, we it's instant. We get what we whatever we want. It seems like we can order it on Amazon. We can we can true. we can go through the drive through and get our dinner. So I think building patience in us and and not only patience with others but patience uh on God and his timing. Um All right, you've got a, a Greek word for x. I believe it's Greek, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So xenial. Um uh it came from well the root word came from uh, a Greek word but the, the I use the English word xenial. Um, which really talks about hospitality, and and it's funny when you look up um, the original definition of of the Greek word, it, it talks about hosp- hospitality, but not only extended to friends, but but really more hospitality to strangers, mm-hmm. visiting strangers or foreigners. Yeah, which mm-hmm. I thought was really eye opening, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, uh, third chapter, uh, John. Third John one five says, "Dear friend, when you extend hospitality to Christian brothers and sisters, even when they are strangers, you make the faith visible." Yeah, to me, I couldn't have found a better verse. That's that like talks perfect. About Zenial. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm um, feeling convicted by this because my hospitality towards strangers um, and foreigners is not the best. Oh, that's and it's not an easy task. I mean, yeah challenging for sure yeah. it's easy to invite friends over yeah <laughs> but uh even even just acquaintances it gets a lot tougher but i've had guests in the show that their their ministry is to open their house and in, invite they have strangers in like like almost weekly yeah yeah that is a, a gift for sure it is a gift yeah so the, the the transformation stepping towards transformation when you talk about transformation, was the idea behind writing this book is that you, Steve, or now known as the Blade, <laughs> wanted to do his own stepping towards transformation, or had you already been? I uh, I think that came out of it. Okay, I mean, um, through the writing process for sure, and and I, I purposely used observations uh, as the subtitle: observations on a life transformed because. Because I didn't want to say, you know, steps towards a life of transformation. Because I'm under the belief that really God can change is the only one that can change the heart and transform us. We mm-hmm. can we can we can facilitate and help with that by working on the things that he's that he puts in our path 
uh, which is kind of what the book is about. It's trying to put these attributes and practices out there and so that we can work on this. But um, I like to say uh, one of the things that that God really showed me in this book with regards to, at least for me, again, I'm not a theologian, but when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and, and those attributes that are mentioned in the book, he gave me this insight that, you know, I always used to think, well, grow the fruit in my life, you know, but that's not really for me. Fruit fruit is not for the tree. Fruit is for those around the tree. It's supposed to be experienced by everybody that comes in contact with the tree. And so that's kind of my hope is that by working on some of these, we can affect those around us and draw them in. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that you've got some of the fruits of the Spirit in here. I think if we're going to have a, a good devotional, we're going to pay attention to that always. I know patience is in here, love is in here. Uh, it, does joy make it? Joy is in there, yes. Okay. Can you say a little bit more about the the, the joy page? Yeah. Uh, I'd say for me, just learning that joy is different than happiness. We're yeah. all, we, all, we all want to pursue happiness, but happiness is really just a fleeting moment that comes. It's something we react to where joy is really a choice, and it's something that we can, we can make because of the confidence of, of what we know to be true in Christ, regardless of circumstances. Mm-hmm. When you uh, finished the A to Z component, Steve, of this book, did you come up with any conclusions or any final thoughts or things that you would say to your to your reading audience as they're closing the book? Yeah. For the first time, because sure. I'm sure this sure. is a book you reopen a bunch of times. I, I would hope so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's something that... Pay for it that once, I, that but I open it can, many times, right? That you can revisit, right, for sure. Right, exactly. For sure. Yeah. I think, to me, it's, it's that it points people to Jesus and really points people to the simple theology of loving God and loving others. Um, I think sometimes we like to complicate things too much. Yeah. Talk a little bit about wisdom. You say, uh, obviously, true wisdom does not exist without a God-centered life. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, and, I, and I took that um, from Scripture uh, and, and kind of used the uh, walk through the example of King Solomon and, and how, you know, early in his reign, he was, he was uh, considered to be the wisest who maybe has ever been on the earth. Um, but late in his reign, he'd made some foolish choices. So, um, I think uh, I think that all kind of centered around him starting to make just starting to uh, lose that center of of being Christ centered, and and that's when uh, I think he lost a lot of that wisdom. Mm-hmm. Did you have any moments when you were writing this book that you were sort of having this moment with the Lord that just felt a little bit bigger than anything you've ever experienced? Or was it just get up and get back to work and and do the job of writing another That's devotion? That's a great question. That's a great question. I think, to me, it was uh, I did have some of those times. Okay. Um, I I can't recall right now exactly, but they were specific. They were they were on specific chapters where I, I want to say it's it was really more when when I felt conviction, because what I was writing about, um, God was also saying. Well, what about you, Steve? You know, oh, yeah. how, how does this apply to you? Um, because I think I think our best teaching moments are uh, <laughs> are first taught to ourselves before before uh, translated and and uh, taught to others. Mm-hmm. So, this is your first attempt, your it first is. book. So, uh, congratulations! And it, it, I also want to just remind 
listeners that the uh, Twins, the uh, Northwestern Christian Writers Conference is coming up uh, this summer, this July. It's in person and online options are still available. All registrations types can sign up for uh, even a one-on-one, but space is limited. So if you've always wanted to write a book like Steve, Steve has actually written one. It's called An Alphabet for Change, Observations on a Life Transformed. But if if this is an itch you want to scratch, you might want to also uh, head over to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference coming up uh, July 16th and 17th. That's just a few weeks away. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go to Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. Dot com. Steve, thanks so much for coming in, and uh, congratulations on your book. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks yep. for having me. Uh, Blade's been my guest. We're kind of casual now, <laughs> but his real name is Steve Hallblade, and the book is An Alphabet for Change, Observations on a Life Transformed. We'll take a little break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.